Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 28th, 2022, and the issue of human life, the philosophies of human life, or the philosophy of human life remains in the headlines. Uh, Lots of headlines about um, abortion, abort the court, one demonstrator suggests in the New York Times, if only perhaps some people might say. Um, the issue of going back is interesting. Lots of people are saying, we won't go back, that we're going back 50 years in terms of this uh, new decision from the court. Other people believe that um, we're going, we're not going back, we're going somewhere worse. This was a, a piece in the New Yorker. Um, the issue of life and of death and of our rights, of course, is central in this uh, in terms of what uh, Shoshana Zuboff called surveillance capitalism. Some people believe that in a post-Roe America, we're all going to be watched all the time to make sure we're not having abortions of one kind or another. Margaret Atwood, of course, already warned us about this. Uh, she was on the show last year uh, in her great book, The Handmaid's Tale. But the issue of life and of death is something that's so complicated, particularly in American context, that uh, Atwood hasn't cornered the market. My guest today has a really interesting new book out, Jenny Kleeman. She's a distinguished British journalist. She has a new book out, Sexed Robots and Vegan Meat. And uh, she's joining us from Kentish Town in North London. Uh, Jenny, you're watching America as all... Brits do. What do you make of this latest furor over abortion? How does it fit in to sex, robots and vegan meat? Well, I think like a lot of people, I am shocked, but not surprised. You know, it's one of these things that that people saw coming and uh, a lot of feminists was, were, were, were saying might happen, uh, but nobody really expected it to happen, even with the leaks from the Supreme Court. Uh, so I guess when the news did arrive, um, it was a terrible shock and it, and it feels very regressive. And here in the UK, of course, we feel very connected with American politics because so much of American culture is the water that we swim in. We're using the same social media platforms to, to, to discuss similar issues, but things are, are very different here. Um, but it's made us all reappraise the basis of our, our rights and, and, and how, uh, how this all hangs together in, in, in quite a, a fragile tapestry, really. And for me in particular, it's quite relevant to what I wrote about in Sex, Robots and Vegan Meat, which is a book about uh, technologies uh, that promise to change what it means to be human. It, the book is divided into four sections, looking at four different technologies, birth, food, sex and death. And the birth section is about the artificial womb. Uh, what would happen if uh, we could have babies without anyone being pregnant? And it looks at uh, reproductive rights from the perspective of what would happen for women's rights if uh, pregnancy could take place outside of the body? Would we still have the right to choose whether or not to become parents if the process didn't happen uh, within our own bodies? Would we uh, would our, our motherhood be policed even more uh, if it wasn't happening in, in, inside our own bodies? Uh, because so much of our reproductive rights at the moment are pegged on, on the viability of, of the fetus 
fetus, what if a fetus could be viable uh, at any length of gestation because technology could... could um... Jenny, let me jump in here. Um, do you think it's any coincidence that this furor is happening at a time where, as you reveal in, in, in Sex, Robots and Vegan Meat, uh, technology might potentially be reinventing the whole idea of what it means to have a baby uh, and indeed what it means to be born and to die and perhaps even be challenging the idea of death. It, it's no coincidence, is it? There must be something more to it. Well, technology promises human beings a degree of control uh, and certainly um, the illusion of control over nature, um, which has always kind of eluded us. It's always the holy holy grail for human beings. We are terrified of, of, of the unknown and uh, our lack of control over the fundamental elements of our existence. And technology gives us this, this illusion that if we had enough data, if we had all the information, um, then we can be in total control of, of things. Uh, so I think it's kind of in, in step with this kind of um, obsession with control that has become more and more acute now that we have better and better tools that give us the impression that we have it. But when it comes to the kind of technologies of, of controlling pregnancy and birth, we're quite far away from actually being able to use artificial uh, wombs. What we can do is, is uh, as you were mentioning in your, your introduction there, is, um, you know, the, the technologies for surveillance are better than ever before. So we've had, you know, over the past weekend, women all over the world saying that they're deleting their um, menstruation tracking apps for fear of the idea that that is going to be used uh, to control them at a, at a later date when they when they come to make their reproductive choices. If you've put your menstrual cycles into the ether, then who's to say years down the line um, that, that people won't be using that against you or using it to um, to investigate you? So uh, very much, I would say that it's in keeping with with the spirit of the times in terms of what our desires are. Uh, but I don't think the technology is is yet there to um, to create a pregnancy without women yet. In the book, um, Sex, Robots and Vegan Meat, did you investigate any of the technologies associated with contraception? You read, and I'm not an expert in this area, but one reads now about abortion pills. And I'm not sure if that's meant um, in a broad sense, or whether there literally are these high-tech pills that allow you to have an abortion even if you're pregnant? I didn't investigate that. I was very specifically focused on the artificial womb and the idea of, of pregnancy outside um, the human body. But those technologies um, have existed for a very long time. Uh, abortion pills, pills to terminate pregnancies in the UK uh, during the pandemic, they were delivered by post um, because you used to be you used to have to go into a hospital and be given that by a clinician or go into a doctor's surgery. Um, and then they were delivered by post during the pandemic. Uh, and that has now been uh, rescinded. And many people in the UK saw that as an infringement of uh, of abortion rights, that they saw this as a step in, in, in the right direction in terms of making it easier for women to terminate pregnancies without uh, having to make a case in, in, in front of a doctor. Uh, Jenny, uh, in your in your book, Sex, Robots and Vegan Meat, particularly in your investigations of a wombless birth, is it a, a flight from the body? Does it suggest that we, you know, just as we're obsessed with colonizing space, that we're successfully or trying to successfully engineer an escape 
from our bodies, which have always been our mortal limitation? I think we are. Um, I think we want to depersonify many parts of, of human existence because it makes it easier uh, to control and it makes surveillance easier. I mean, if you look at the entire process of having a baby, uh, we use surveillance more and more. And, and from the beginning, you know, you have your sperm counts measured, you track your uh, fertility cycles, you get pregnant and you have a scan uh, showing you, you know, up to the date in, in four dimensions of what your baby is doing. We want to have a, a, as much information as possible. And that, you know, continues after, you know, when the baby is born and monitored constantly, then we we now look at babies on baby monitors um, all the time. We don't just listen to I mean, when I had my first child, it was uh, he's eight now. It was common to just have an audio monitor. But now you're meant to have a, a video monitor and you're also meant to have sensors inside your baby's crib that tells you if your baby hasn't been moving to warn you of, 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 um, of cot death. We want uh, more and more uh, data. And if you have something that's outside the body, it's easier to look at, it's easier to inspect, it's easier to collect that data, and therefore it's easier to control. The other piece of this puzzle, or it's a complicated puzzle, um, which I'm not sure if you, you write about in the book, is uh, the trans community mm. and the yes, idea of escaping gender. How much is that bound up or reinventing gender how much is that bound up in this escape from the body and and the desire and perhaps the technology to develop uh, wombless births in the book i, I interview a, a a trans person uh, somebody who was um uh, assigned male at birth and has transitioned uh, had a had a, had a sex reassignment surgery um, uh, and calls himself they, uh, but uh, is is has has had uh, what would have been called a sex change operation, but is not called that anymore. And this person said to me that they consider an artificial womb like a prosthesis. Um, you know, this uh, person uh, Juno Roche, who's an author, they say that they um, could never would never have considered really wanted to have. A, to have their own baby, but would never have considered using sperm to have a baby and couldn't use a surrogate because it would be too painful uh, to see a woman carrying uh, their baby. And so an artificial womb would represent this new frontier of freedom. And uh, this person I spoke to likened it to seeing, um, you know, uh, disabled people in, in the Paralympics uh, winning track races with prosthesis. This would be a, a way of giving them the, the full experience that biology had, had denied them. And I do think we are moving into a kind of, a, I think there are quite a few people who would like us to move into a post-biological world, a world where technology will allow us to transcend um, human biology. And artificial wounds are certainly a part of that. But so many of our, our rights are based in our uh, biology, that it becomes an enormous problem between people who, who say that, uh, you know, sex is immutable and biology is a fact that we can't get beyond, and other people who say that, um, you know, it's a construct and, and technology can help us transcend it. You're, uh, and, and I, correct me please if I'm wrong, you seem to be a, a skeptic of, of this stuff, but there are people that one wouldn't necessarily associate with believing in this, who, who, who are a little bit more optimistic. Jeanette Winterson, for example, is an old friend of mine. She was on the show recently. She has a new book out 
12 bytes about the possibility of artificial intelligence. This is, of course, another really important piece of the puzzle. Maybe this is the puzzle in itself. Um, do you believe in the idea of artificially intelligent life? Uh, uh, Kazuo Ishiguro wrote a, a wonderful book recently, Clara in the Sun, in which he introduces um, a, a, an artificially intelligent uh, thing that seems in many ways more human than the humans in the book. I very much think that um, there is going to be a level of artificial intelligence where uh, we can have the illusion of companionship with a machine. We can have relationships with machines, but this isn't real companionship. Uh, real companionship is a, is a two-way street and a, a relationship requires you to have empathy uh, with another person. And you can't empathize with, with something that isn't doesn't have thoughts and, and feelings. And I, I am skeptical of technology that is promising to solve very human problems by circumventing them. My concern about relationships with, with artificial intelligence, which is the sex robots part of my book, is um, when it becomes possible to have a relationship where all that matters is what one half of the partnership wants, uh, their desires and what they want to do. And empathy is no longer a requirement of human interaction. I worry that it will erode our capacity for, for human empathy. So while I think there will be plausible artificial intelligence that we can feel that we are having a relationship with, we need to be very attuned to the fact that it's not a human relationship, it's something else. And I worry if we begin to interact with machines in the same way as we'd interact with humans, what it's going to do uh, for our capacity to interact with each other. Yeah, you introduced the E word. Uh, there's a lot of money in the E word, in empathy. We've done lots of shows. We did a show last week with a woman, Natalie Petterhoof, has a book out, Empathy in Action, which is essentially an attempt to monetize empathy through artificial intelligence. It's all a bit chilling. Let's move on from death to something, the, the, the second feature in your book. One of the things that intrigued me um, from, from your sex uh, robots and vegan meat, one of the things that intrigued me about Clara and the Sun Ishiguro's book was that the robot never ate. Uh, humans, of course, eat. But in your book, you talk about a food revolution as well, or a theoretical food revolution that may force us, for better or worse, to rethink the very idea of food. This is, again, bound up with artificial intelligence, artificial birth. Uh, what's happening on the food front, uh, Jenny? So I was looking at meat, uh, you know, the question of what if you could eat meat without killing animals. And this was looking at lab grown meat, uh, which, of course, the people who make it don't call it lab grown meat. But there isn't really a consensus at the moment of, of what this substance is. This is uh, meat that comes from culturing animal cells uh, in, a, in a, a facility instead of growing it on an animal's body and you know we live in a in a world of um you know finite resources overpopulation environmental devastation caused as a consequence of intensive agriculture and this is being presented uh, to the world as a way that we can have our steak and eat it we can carry on eating a, as much meat as we like without causing um, harm to the planet, without causing the overuse of antibiotics, wastage of water, pollution, deforestation. Um, we can carry on eating whatever we like um, uh, without the environmental consequences. And um, this is a kind of an industry that's suffused with hype 
Uh, we have heard about it for about 10 years now, the possibility of this happening. In fact, I wrote an article very recently uh, for the New Statesman in the UK um, about current advances in, in this substance. It's still, the, the industry still hasn't coalesced over what to call it. I think they're calling it cultivated meat at the moment. Um, but for me, the question was, yeah, I think the piece was called, uh, we invented the cow 10,000 years ago, lab-grown meat is just the next step, which makes yes. it less revolutionary than it might seem. Yes, this is a quote from someone uh, who, who works not far from where you are uh, right now, who, who sees this as a natural stage in, in, in human evolution. Um, but for me, the question is, is this a ridiculously over-engineered solution? Uh, could we just you know, achieve the same outcomes uh, and eat less meat? Do we really need to be growing it in a laboratory? And, and if we, we move into this world where humans no longer kill animals, but we still eat meat, will we not be divesting ourselves of control? Um, because at the moment I can keep some chickens and, and, and raise them for food. In this, even in Kentish Town? Even in Kentish Town, yes, even in my, my garden in Kentish Town. But in the future that, that um, I mean, I, I call it vegan meat. It's a, it's a sort of, it's a joke really, but the, the entrepreneurs behind this, they are by and large vegan. But in the, in the world that they are working towards where we, we don't kill animals, but we, we still use meat, we will be relying on highly specialized technology uh, in enormous facilities that may very well belong to some companies that don't really care about saving the planet or saving the animals. They just want money. And in fact, we'll have, we'll have much less control um, over, our, over our, our food than we do even now. So just as there's money in empathy, there's money in veganism, and perhaps it's no coincidence like the debate and developments within the trans community. It's no coincidence that in our age of, of the high tech that you covered, uh, Jenny, uh, veganism is very fashionable in a growing business. There is money in telling people that they can get whatever they want without any compromise. And all of the technologies that I've looked at make that promise. They say that human beings can carry on you know, as, as before and have the perfect relationship with a robot, have the perfect meat without any ethical problems, have the perfect birth and, and, and have the perfect death. There is an enormous amount of money. And you missed that. You missed the S word, which is the third piece of your book, sex. We cannot sex, only... well, saying relationships, but ultimately that's what it's about. It's the perfect sex, but it's more than that. It's a sexual partnership. It's having a, a, a partner that always laughs at all of your jokes, wants whatever you want, never says no. Um, and there's money to be made in, 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 in that, certainly. Um, but the reality is that all of these technologies create problems in their wake. And, uh, you know, actually, we do need to have, make sacrifices uh, in life because, you know, it, it is impossible to have um, the perfect anything, really. How, um, how new are these debates, Jenny? You're a very well-educated woman. Uh, I mean, you, you know as well as I do that all this stuff was covered in part, at least, in Huxley's Brave New World. Uh, his isn't the only book, but certainly the best-known book. I just wrote a piece about it, suggesting that Huxley's still more relevant than Orwell in terms of imagining a dystopia. What's new about what's happening in the early part of the 21st century that Huxley, for example, especially in his focus on sex and this idea we can be sexually happy uh, through soma, through, uh, through drugs that, that Huxley didn't cover? What's new? What's new is that these were tropes of science fiction and these were in the realms of ideas now, where then, whereas now uh, people are putting 
you know, large amounts of money behind them. There's a lot of venture capital certainly being in, invested um, in the world of uh, lab-grown meat because if you know it's it's a, it's a trillion-dollar industry, the meat industry. If you can get a tiny proportion of that, that's a lot of money. And I think also the um, you know grounds is shifting. We no longer believe that we are constrained uh, by nature. That we that there are you know gr- there are there are things that only ten years ago. Um, seemed like no-brainers that we are we are questioning now, and everything feels up for grabs. So whilst these are not new ideas, in that they were discussed in the realms of possibility, and in fact, you know, people say the original sex robot was Pygmalion, uh, you know, carved the perfect woman carved in marble, who, who Aphrodite brought to life in a kiss, uh, Galatea, Pygmalion sculpture. Um, you know, these ideas have always been around because they represent really deep-seated human desires, but in the past they were only expressed through through fiction or philosophy. Now people are investing money and, and making prototypes of them. Philosophers or some philosophers might suggest that we live in this bizarrely parallel world, maybe not so bizarre, where on the one hand we have all this technology that allows us supposedly to live forever and create these perfect relationships. Um, And on the other hand, we live in an age where people are more and more isolated, lonelier and lonelier, questioning what it means to be human, not wanting to have children. Is there a connection between these two things or are they just coincidental? I think there's certainly a connection between them because these these technologies are not solutions to problems. They're circumventions of problems. They, they provide us with other avenues to, to explore, uh, you know, to feel like we're connecting without looking at the, the reasons for our loneliness and solving those problems. And that is my kind of thesis in the book is when we outsource our power uh, to technologies and, and machines, we do ourselves a disservice. We, we deny ourselves an opportunity for growth. And it is that growth that is the key to human progress, not just the tools we use for, for human human progress. We need to make social change um, alongside or before technological change. Technological change doesn't lead to social change. And, uh, you know, the, the, these when, you, when you've got technologies that have been funded by venture capitalists, their priority is always about, um, you know, generating profits and not necessarily... Uh, doing the best for mankind. Um, and when that's the bottom line, I guess human beings will suffer, particularly when it's things as intimately uh, as intimate as, you know, how we're born, how we die, what we eat and, and the nature of our relationships. Yeah, and we had a venture capitalist. We've had many on the show. Uh, mm. Sergey Young uh, last year has a book out, The Science and Technology of Growing Old. He suggests endless life, the promise yes. through technology of endless life. He's an investor. Ray Kurzweil, of course, and Google is one of the other pioneers. Um, our lives aren't particularly fun at the moment. They're perhaps more miserable, and yet we're inventing technologies that make us live forever. Again, the issue of death is central in your book. You're not the first smart English woman to deal with this. Jessica Mitford, of course, wrote a classic book, The American Way of Death. Is there something American about this promise, this seduction of living forever, Jenny, or is it a global thing? It's funny you ask that. The American edition of, of my book, originally my publishers wanted, my, the, the, the uh, title of my, my book is Sex, Robots and Vegan Meat, Adventures at the Frontier of Birth, Food, Sex and Death. 
the American edition of my book, uh, they wanted to drop death from the title because they said Americans are very squeamish about death. I had to really fight about that and say, so Americans are okay with sex robots, but not death. Um, and my American publisher eventually uh, allowed me to put the word on the front. I do think there's something quite American about, uh, um, you know, wanting to circumvent death because, you know, Amer Americans are all about the, the pursuit of self-actualization and, and liberty, aren't they? And, uh, you know, I, I've looked at technologies to, to um, increase lifespan. There are some really quite... Um, promising medicines you know about to get on the market that are you know um, the, the people behind them are seeking fda approval for them this is not a uh, snake oil that that it might have been in the past this is not severe calorie restriction or any of those those life extension uh, tactics of years ago that i would argue you know if you, if you practice them your life wouldn't be worth extending there are some really promising contenders uh, that would increase our lifespan uh, massively but I think nobody is really asking what that would do for our lives if death becomes something that we either choose through suicide or that happens because of an accident, whether or not we'd be paralyzed by the fear of death. We're already so afraid of it. We're already so bad at talking about it. Uh, would we become terrified of, of getting in a car? Would we still go for vaccine trials? Would we still uh, go to the moon if uh, life was potentially 200, 300, 400 years years long and the only thing that would end it would be our, our choice or, or or some terrible accident i i don't i think you know human endeavor is, is partly framed by the fact that human life is is tangibly finite and uh, so the pursuit of of immortality i think has the potential to, to undermine what makes us who we are there's also of course the issue of euthanasia you yeah. You've written about this in the book um, in an interesting uh, Guardian piece. Perhaps the Americans are obsessed with endless life, avoiding eliminating death, whereas the Europeans are in some ways pioneering euthanasia. Is that too simplistic a way of thinking about it? Uh well, I think Americans don't have to think about euthanasia in the same way because Americans have the right to bear arms and they, when they want to end their lives, they euthanize themselves, which we don't have in Europe. So, yeah, you know, that's a good way. I, I like that idea that uh, Americans have, have legislated euthanasia through the right to bear arms. Well, exactly. And, uh, and that's why Philip Nitschke, whose picture you showed there and who, who, whose um, inventions I look at in my book, he's invented suicide machines and suicide devices. He's not a big deal in America because there's no real need for him. Everybody has uh, quite easy access to the means of, of, of ending their own life at a time and, and a place of their choosing in, in, in the US. Um, but I, I, I look at him as an example of how we have failed in countries where euthanasia is not legal, how, how we have failed people because people still desire control uh, over their own deaths and fear um, an undignified, painful uh, death that they have no say in. And because of that, people like him are able to make money by by giving people what they want. He he runs an organization where for a fee, he will tell members um, the most effective ways to, to, to kill yourself. And he's invented a 3D printable suicide machine which is available uh, to members. Not quite, uh, not quite practically available yet because people can't print it out uh, on, on home printers yet, but it's, you know, he imagines that in five or 10 years time, you'll be taking your plans, printing out the suicide pod, climbing in and dying. Again, a very, a very science fiction idea, but also completely unnecessary because all we need to do is frame the laws 
such that people who want the right to die uh, can die in, in a dignified way. Uh, and those who don't want it can be protected from, from coercion into it. And yet, you know, it is easier for us to uh, think about suicide devices like this rather than working out how to um, how to legislate for it, certainly in the UK. So it's a symptom right. of a problem rather than a solution to it, I would say. Jenny, I know you've got to run. You've got your kids coming home. Um, finally, uh, a, a political question. You're... I won't say your day job, but you're also not just a writer. You've, you've worked for a number of very prominent uh, English, uh, British TV radio shows on politics. Uh, uh, yesterday, I had the American geo, geo futurist Peter Zeehan on the show. The end of the world is just the beginning, mapping the collapse of civilization. No, whoops. Mapping the collapse, not of civilization, of globalization is his, his title. And he talks about how the 2020s are going to be marked by massive chaos and the changes in everything. And what he suggests is that by the end of the decade, he wasn't willing to predict because he, he he's not clairvoyant. But he does believe they're going to be very, very profound political changes that as this technology uh, in his world, he, he covers some of the same ground as you, although it's more on the geostrategic front. Um, as this technology changes the world, we're going to have a very different kind of politics, different kind of political parties, different kinds of political mm. ideas and ideologies. Your book, Sex, Robots and Vegan Meat, is is not a book about politics, but how do you expect politics to change? After all, we began this show talking about the Supreme Court and the idea of politics as usual changing the world. Maybe that's true, maybe it isn't. What changes do you expect in politics to go along with your 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 future of sex robots and vegan meat i think the world is going to become further polarized as as people retreat into their entrenched positions in, in the face of technology disrupting what used to be um completely taken for granted i.e that uh, you know, women bear the children. That uh, you know, you you die at a time uh, w that you that you can't control. Um, it's going to technology is going to create new political realities and cause us to question the foundation of a lot of our our rights. You know, if if a baby can survive outside the womb at any time, why should we in the UK uh, say that we we're going to allow abortion up to 24 weeks because a baby can survive um, outside the womb after 24 weeks. We're going to have to, to reappraise the basis for a lot of our, our rights, our beliefs about natural justice in the world. Um, I, worry, I worry about the way that technology incentivizes polarization, not just, you know, the sort of technologies in my book, um, but the way that we connect with each other on social on social media, and until we can find a way of uh, no longer monetizing dissent in, in, in such a way, uh, we are going to continue along the path where it feels sometimes like we're speaking different languages to people who who might live on the same road as us. So that's quite a bleak assessment of where I see politics going. But I think the antidote to this is, is empathy and is listening to people properly in a world that, that requires us to, to have a, a very short take on everything. I think, I hope that there's going to be a backlash to all of that, that we're all going to embrace listening to each other and listening at length and in depth. 
Well, uh, Empathy in Action deals with that. What other books, uh, and your book, of course, Sex, Robots and Vegan Meat, touches on empathy, uh, all rose in some ways in your book and in your thinking leads to that human, that essential human quality. What else, in addition to uh, Sex, Robots and Vegan Meat, uh, Jenny, should people be reading these days that are relevant? What books are you reading? Well, um, the most recent book that I read that completely blew my mind, it's not a particularly new book, but what is uh, Patrick Radden-Keefe's Empire of Pain uh, about yeah. the Sack family, which for me, as an example of kind of, you know, just the most brilliant journalism, it's a kind of triple threat of unbelievable story, fantastic reporting and beautiful storytelling. You know, in fact, it's a quadruple threat because I listen to it as an audio book and he reads it beautifully, Patrick Radden-Keefe. So I think it's a kind of exemplar of, of, of how journalism should be done and how you can make a really powerful case without making the case at all by just uncovering such an incredible avalanche of facts and, and telling them in, in such a beautiful way that, you know, it was literally every minute of listening to this audio book, my jaw was on the floor uh, without being told that it should be there. Um, so more of that, please, I would say.